Tooth and Claw, Volume 1, Issue 5, Lincolnshire, England, Present Day. They followed the transit van south out of the city, the land flattening and the fields growing larger as they moved in line with the wash. Patches of drizzle flecked the road as it bent east into the wind, and a creeping low fog billowed over the limp wreaths and saturated grasses of the fens, threatening to leap up into the heavy cloud and blanket all from ground to sky. There were few other vehicles on the road. Howard instinctively tailed the van at a distance. The highway meandered past scattered farmhouses and barns, the odd hamlet. Though the dense marshlands of old were long gone, the network of dikes and streams kept a clinging dampness that occasionally freshened with strong dry winds, but usually hung, draped over metal and wood and stone. In this sense, it retained its ancient mien. Fields now covered bogs, but the vast spaces between architecture still remained, and the disorientating similarity of the landscape meant privacies and places of secrecy still lurked. The van turned off a roundabout onto a narrower road that ran past a small clearing where a petrol station sat obdurately, a simple set of four pumps and a small shop front, devoid of any sense of welcome. Wet bags of kindling sat next to dripping newspaper racks awaiting the next delivery. Drake made Howard pull over into a field entrance half a mile back. They left the car there and the three of them sneaked through the long grass that edged the field. They scaled a small mound at the corner and hid there, a clear view of the forecourt. Duckstone and another man stepped from the van into the yellow light that warmed the rain-slicked black tarmac. They talked while Duckstone inspected the area, observing the short hedgerow that abutted the field and the dirty advertising boards that split the roadside entrance. Satisfied, they climbed back in the van and drove it behind the shop front where it remained, engine off. The young man behind the counter, cocooned in his artificial bubble, barely seemed to notice. Half an hour passed. Ross shivered in the cold. They'd barely spoken. Drake only issued short commands when necessary. He had his usual air of relaxed application, an alert ease to everything he did, even when silent. Howard, evidently unhappy about being out in the rain, kept quiet too. Over the next ten minutes or so, they watched a number of cars and taxis pulling up at the garage and dropping off small groups or individuals. All young adults or in early middle-aged, some in tracksuits and jackets, some with overalls already on. They milled around under the awning, a few popping into the shop for snacks or drinks. About 15 there now, Ross ventured finally. Factory workers, Howard said bluntly, Eastern Europeans, Romanians and Polish mostly. They do the night shifts at the produce factories round here. Didn't think to mention this, Drake said without looking at him. Howard pulled his head back sharply as if stung. Didn't see it as unusual. Happens pretty much every night. Does Clive Duckstone usually pull up with a bunch of men and hide in the dark too? No, but Drake turned and gave him a withering look. Howard stopped. Just then another set of headlights came up the road behind them and a large grey minibus turned left into the forecourt. 
It pulled up between the sets of pumps and two large men in bright tracksuits got out, holding clipboards. They approached the workers and started to check them off their lists. Drake and Ross looked at each other. There, Drake said, looking back at the garage as a burst of noise came from behind the shop. The black transit van careened around the corner, skidding slightly before locking back into a ferocious drive. The minibus guys turned in astonishment as the van switched its lights on full beam and turned sharply toward them. Factory workers screamed and scattered. The van slammed into the side of the minibus with a sickening crunch as metal buckled with a horrible, trebly screech. The bus rocked sideways and slid with a tearing moan across the slick ground before it bit and flipped. It came to rest on its side with an uneasy slump, leaning on one of the pumps which rocked and trembled. The black transit was hardly damaged. As it juddered to a halt, six large men poured out of the rear door, armed with batons and sticks. They charged the two men from the minibus who dropped their clipboards and started to back up. One reached into his jacket pocket. The handle of a baseball bat took him in the face and stunned him. His friend was quickly surrounded, arms behind his back. Duckstone got out of the passenger door and approached. Some of the factory workers had already fled up the dark road, whilst others stood, still shocked. From their vantage point, Drake, Ross and Howard could see everything, but the Fenland wind pushed all words into inaudibility. Waving off his henchman, Duckstone approached the second man and towered over him. He leaned down briefly as if whispering, then leant back and grabbed the man's throat. With one fluid motion, Duckstone lifted the man clear off his feet, so he was extended right above his head, a good ten feet off the ground. With a flick of the wrist, Duckstone tossed him like a wet paper cup over the heads of his own men. He crashed limply into the stacks of sodden kindling. The remaining gaggle of work had screamed loud enough for the agents to hear. Duckstone's men exchanged a nervous glance. Shit. What do we do? Howard hissed in panic. Nothing yet, Drake said calmly. Duckstone wasn't done. He walked to his prey, still crumpled in a daze, and grabbed him by his short hair. He dragged him, kicking to one of the petrol pumps. He grabbed a hose and roughly levered the nozzle in between the man's teeth. A short pump on the trigger and the man spluttered back into consciousness. Petrol tumbled out of his mouth with a wrench, followed by a peal of vomit. He shuddered on all fours as Duckstone idly sprayed arcs of fuel over his head so it ran down his face and mingled with his streaming eyes. Too much, surely, Howard asked again, visibly agitated his hand poised on his phone. We'll see, Drake said again calmly. Some of those men are carrying guns, Howard. Ross and I are armed. Are you? He turned and gave Ross a wry smile. Back up at least, Howard begged. No point, Ross said, nodding to Drake. They wouldn't get here in time. Duckstone replaced the nozzle in its holster, his victim still coughing, spluttering, covered in petrol. He turned and spoke to one of his men who threw him something small box of matches. The spark briefly illuminated the rainbow pools of fuel on the ground that swirled around the whimpering man, who now looked up at Duckstone, from a face red and swollen, contorted in despair. He's going to burn him alive, Howard yelped. Silence, Drake ordered, a heaviness to his words, though they remained soft. I doubt he's going to burn him. Not like this, anyway. Duckstone waved the lit match in the man's face. The man shook his head violently. Duckstone patted him on the head with his other hand, raised the match to his mouth, spluttering flame and all, and swallowed it. He 
cuffed the man round the head sharply, knocking him to the floor. In a matter of minutes, Duckstone and his men were gone, leaving a few shaken workers to tend to the injured men on the ground. After a few more minutes, Drake led Ross and Howard back to the car, where he sighed easily as he relaxed into the relative warmth and comfort of the passenger seat. Are we not even going to call it in? Howard asked wearily, already knowing the answer. No need. The garage attendant will report it and no one was seriously hurt. It was a warning. A loud and clear warning. But about what? Ross asked, blowing on his hands and rubbing them together. Well, I think our good detective Howard can help us with that as he drives us to the St Giles estate. Howard's brow furrowed with concern. St Giles? Yes. Time to go and see Daddy. Sydney, Australia, 15 years earlier. Those months had passed in a steady, widening pattern of inclusion for Robert. He quickly fell into the work at the takeaway, becoming increasingly adept with a cleaver or peeler, and finding the backroom work a marvel for his fitness. His health had returned quickly, his strength just as fast. He did all the lifting in the storeroom and when it came to deliveries, and his body was tightening into a thicker, more powerful frame. The amazing food helped. Chen Tang had also started to give him lessons, mainly breathing and movement exercises. Tai Chi, probably, Robert thought, but the old man would not name it. Whatever the system was, Robert found the sessions transformative. He felt a new connection with his body and the breath control and movements Chen Tang taught him allowed him to access this with increasing speed. In those moments, with the old man talking him softly through the forms, the quickness of general thought seemed to be caught by the growing heat he would feel in his chest and be brought down from his head through his body. Performing slowly, Robert could sense the series of patterns in hyperspeed, as if his limbs could execute them in the same time it took him to think them. This speed and power waited patiently at the edge of the idea, neither a memory or a premonition, but a combination of both. With his eyes closed, his mind surrendered entirely to the movements and his own breath. Flashes of intense experience assailed his calm. They were the sounds and feelings of when he had been near death, the wild combinations of nature shifting from season to season within a moment, the passage of time condensed into the roar of the ocean and the clanging of hot metals in rushing wind. They appeared for split seconds, but contained hints of far longer durations, parceled forms that would unspool to surface areas that spanned lifetimes. When they came, Robert felt his center flow upwards and become weightless, so he had to open his eyes to stop from falling. The old man had told him, let them come and go like waves on a shoreline, for the receding ocean reveals the ground still beneath. Chen Tang was a little curmudgeonly at the best of times, but in the lessons he was serious and patient. Robert felt then that they were almost friends, experiencing the splitting of air, the taking in of it and the breathing out of it, lords of their immediate atmosphere. Lien Hua left them to these sessions, but otherwise spent much time with Robert in the kitchen. On quiet nights, when there was no more work to be done, they'd stroll together through the city and the park sometimes talking animatedly, other times sharing easy silences. 
She was a smart girl, her humour quick but kind. She was fearless and sure of her own thoughts, bold with approval and severe in admonishment. There seemed no artifice to her. One evening, they were sat on the lawn at the edge of the park, lorikeets chirping above and miners scurrying around the pavement and verge. A cool breeze came up from the harbour, easing the dense heat. Robert was telling her about his childhood, moving from military base to military base, Hong Kong to Dakar, Singapore to Cairo. You have never had a proper home then, Lian Hua asked, lazily twirling a hyacinth leaf in her fingers. Robert lay back, propped on his elbows, gazing into the sky. I suppose not, but I don't really think you miss what you've never had, he said with tranquility. She turned to him and spun the leaf out of her fingers so it pirouetted in the warm air and fell to the soft grass. Others may feel regret at the void you are not aware of, though, Robert. She lifted her face into the breeze and looked up at the sky. What emptiness do you leave in other places by your absence? Home is a shared endeavour, after all. Robert looked at her now, amazed. He saw the smooth lines of her body curled gently on the green lawn her hair falling to one side across her fair, sloped cheek and marvelled. What she said illuminated her beauty even more. Like you and your grandfather, he said. She looked at him and beamed a smile, jet flashing in her eyes. Robert's stomach jumped. His heart filled his chest. Yes, we have made a good home together, her gaze dropped. Though it hasn't always been easy. Robert paused. Where are your parents? Ian Hua looked him in the eyes. They were killed. In a fire, she said dully. It was back in China. Their restaurant was burnt down. Gangsters, triads were responsible. It was complicated. Like many things back home, I'm led to believe. Her voice stayed level, though it seemed to struggle to maintain. Grandfather rescued me, she said with a gladness. And then to Australia. Yes, she laughed, her face widening to let the evening light in. I have been here longer than I can remember. Though sometimes I think I can feel China in my heart. Probably grandfather's stories. Robert laughed too. He must have some amazing stories. Late on a quiet Sunday afternoon, Chien Tang called Robert back from the kitchen, leaving Lianhua front of house. They assumed the usual positions, as if to perform the movements Chiang Tang had been teaching him. But instead, he walked forward and clasped Robert's forearms firmly. Good. You are strong already, Robert. You have grown. He smiled wistfully, looking Robert up and down. I feel great, Robert replied with genuine gratitude. Chiang Tang seemed to catch himself and step back slightly. He dusted off Robert's arms. Yes, I can see you have taken my training well and you work hard. More importantly, he paused. You have assimilated the wind, waves, earth and flames. He stepped back again and looked at Robert sternly. I, I don't understand, Robert said, merry in his befuddlement, accustomed as he was to the old man's elliptical statements. Chen Tang nodded firmly and held his gaze. I shall tell you, Robert. He paused again and took a breath. Chen Tang seemed to become more rooted to the spot, a solidity to his now tense frame. Do not think I aim to make a fool of you. Please, try me, Robert almost pleaded, returning the old man's tense gaze. Chen Tang looked at him a moment longer, then relaxed his shoulders, 
turned to the oil drum he often perched on and swiveled back to face Robert. He lit his pipe, took a long draw and exhaled slowly. When Lianhua found you in the alley that night, you were near death. I told her to call the paramedics, but she insisted I take you in. It was only because she told me of your gallantry that I agreed. I am very old, Robert, well taught in the ancient medicines of my homeland and adept at certain Western practices also. Yet there was nothing in my cabinet that would heal your wounds, nothing that would stop your blood from leaving your body and your life from fading away in my storeroom. I took your hand as you lay on the bed and prepared to tell Lien Hua that nothing could be done. Robert felt the room closing in on him. Chen Tang took another draw on his pipe. At that moment, I had a vision. Not unlike the visions you experienced when you lay between consciousness. Everything that vision meant to me is too long a tale to tell, but I knew then what I had to do. I healed your wounds and gave you blood. Robert's face pulled back in amazement. A transfusion, he asked. Chen Tang nodded. Whose blood? Mine. Chen Tang seemed reluctant to continue. Robert leaned forward quickly. Please go on. I knew something was up from the moment I came to. You must tell me. Chen Tang waited a moment longer, then sighed. Robert, when I say I am old, I do not mean 90 years old or even 100. I am truly ancient. Robert felt a heat rising in his chest now, felt it begin to hum in the room around him. Chen Tang began to raise his arms up so the smoke from his pipe arced around one side of him, smearing the air. I remember the first humans, Robert. I have always watched them. I am a creature long of this earth and this sky. Robert sensed Chen Tang growing in size, though he remained seated on the oil drum, the light in the storeroom stuttering. The bulbs did not falter, but their light seemed bent and warped around the old man. I am a creature long of these seas and these flames. Chen Tang raised his voice now, but it entered only Robert's ears, the rest of the room holding the normal buzz of halogen and air conditioning. Chen Tang completed the circle with his arm, a full arch of smoke now surrounding him. Robert felt his mouth move of his own accord, though he knew what he was going to say, repeating the old man's words as he uttered them in triumph. I am a dragon. Written and recorded by James Fisher. Edited and read by Andy Bennett. Music by Aquifer.